Our Old Testament reading is Jonah chapter 4, and it's the last section that we have uh, the past few weeks on Jonah, so we're finishing up the book of Jonah. And just one comment about one word in the first uh, verse is the word booth. That's not a telephone booth or a toll booth. It's kind of like a lean-to with some sticks and maybe some leaves on it for shade. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle reading is uh, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 4, and here Paul tells the Romans of Abraham's righteousness, not through the law, like keeping the law or circumcision or anything like that, but because of his faith. What shall we say then? What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast about. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of of God in whom he believed, who gives life to to the dead 
and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the third chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For which is bo- that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The bl- wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So if you look at that, um, uh, let's talk about Jonah, the uh, teachings coming from um, uh, last chapter, Jonah there that we read. If, if you read that chapter, did, did anybody catch this? So Bob told you when he began reading it that this was going to be uh, the last, very last reading in the book of Jonah, right? But... It, it ends weird, doesn't it? In fact, it doesn't really end at all. Does it bother you? Does it bother any of you? It ends with this, uh, you know, God asked Jonah a question. Should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? It's just a weird way to end it, isn't it? It's a question, and it's a question about cattle, right? Well, we'll talk about that. Why does it end like that? Um, there's definitely a reason that it ends with a question, and there's not any sort of denouement or falling action or resolution. Uh, there's a reason for that. But uh, just to kind of reset where we were last week, because um, we, we're, we're picking up right in the middle of a conversation here. Uh, God has challenged uh, Jonah's idol, the thing that Jonah values more than God, although he colors it with God colors. He values it more than God. And remember, an idol is any point of self-justification. Any place in your life where you say, that, 
that gives me worth and value. That's, that, 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 that explains to me why I deserve to exist. That, that's a point of self-justification, right? That anything that you use to justify your own existence. For Jonah, it's his ethnicity, right? He's Jewish. And, and for him, so he's Jewish. He's also a God believer. But what he does is he paints his belief in God. So, so his ethnicity is his idol. That's the thing he really worships. And God, his belief in God is a pillar that holds up his ethnicity. And so when God challenges him and says, I want you to go to these Ninevites, it's a crisis. It's, it's a psychological crisis for him. Because who he is, when he wakes up in the morning and looks in the mirror and says, you, Jonah, are a dang good guy. The reason why he says that is because of his ethnicity. And he's always believed that God was there to support that idol. And now God is telling him to do something that goes against that idol, and so he's challenged. And for Jonah, it's his ethnicity, and maybe it is for you too. Uh, most likely, uh, it's something else. Uh, for, for a lot of us, it's the money that we make or the social status that we have because of the job that we have or the neighborhood that we live in. Or we talked about a lot of these last week, so I don't want to unpack all of these. But it's, you know, it's, the, it's the way that you present yourself on social media. It's your children. Um, uh, whatever it is. Whatever it is that you, that you look in the mirror in the morning and say, you know what? You deserve to exist because of fill in the blank. And like I said, as Christians, we frequently use God. For those of you who are Christians, you'll frequently use God. I frequently use God to support that status, that idolatrous status. Now, when God challenges Jonah about his idolatry, there's two, there's two uh, responses from Jonah that expose that, in fact, what he is worshiping is an idol. One is his anger. He's really, really angry, right? And God asked him twice, once in the reading last week and then once this week, Seriously, do you do right to be angry? Like, is that, is this really worth your anger? Well, we talked about this last week. You know, anger is not a sin, but anger sometimes is like fear, which we talked about a month or so ago. Anger like fear can be a telltale symptom that an idol of yours is being challenged. All right, not always, but more on that in a second. Another response is loss of meaning. Like Jonah, all of a sudden, his life has no purpose. He says two times in chapter 4, like, God, just kill me. Just get rid of me. And he's not necessarily suicidal, but he does feel like there's no really, there's no meaning to this life anymore. I could, I, you could kill me and it would be fine because my purpose is gone. So not, if, if you ever feel like this, right, like, a, and I gave you some examples last week too. If you ever like, I need that person I need a relationship with that person or I just don't even feel like life's worth living. Right? So I gave you the example of the guy I know who told his kid. His kid told him, like, I disagree with you about something ideological. And he told his kid, you're taking my joy away from me. Right? So if you feel like there's just something, like if, uh, again, another example from last week. Uh, stock market crash, there's always a rise in suicide amongst day traders after stock markets crash. Because they've lost money, I guess that's the surface reason, but really they've lost their identity. They've lost the thing that gives them meaning. That's a sign that there's an idol there, and Jonah's been grappling with that. Well, so you get to chapter 4 of Jonah, and now all of a sudden we're seeing what Jonah's really about. See, see we started off in chapter 1, and you're like, okay, God wants to save the city of Nineveh. He's got a prophet, and he's going to do it. Chapter 2, oh my goodness, there's a big fish in this story. Uh, that's what it's really about, right? It's about this big fish. And then in chapter 4, you get to what it's really about, and, 
It's really a story about how God is determined to save Jonah. Jonah's the target the whole time. And now, so let me, this is, this is, you'll like this, this is cool. So um, pay attention to this real closely. You, you remember that uh, throughout the book of Jonah, there's this theme of evil. And God uses the word evil, ra, in Hebrew. He uses this word uh, several times. So he says to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to go to Nineveh, that city, because the, the great evil of that city has risen before me. And then God sends an evil storm up against the boat. And then the sailors on the boat say, who here has caused this great evil that his or her God would send this storm against us? And then Jonah gets to Nineveh and he preaches against their great evil. And the the king of Nineveh says, hey, everybody, let's turn away from this great evil and see if God himself will turn away from the evil that he plans against us. So there's been this theme of evil, you know, and it's all been sort of revolved, it's, it's all, it's all sort of revolved around Nineveh and God's plan to rescue Nineveh from their evil. And there's been a little bit of Jonah in there too, because Jonah's got to raise his hand on the boat and say, actually, I'm the one who started this evil storm. But then you get to chapter four and check this out. You guys will like this. In verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Remember, Jonah's like, Jonah preaches the gospel to Nineveh. Nineveh repents. Jonah's going to go park himself up on a hill above the city to kind of see how the whole thing plays out, you know. Maybe they just got scared and they're going to back off of it and I'll get to see the nuclear storm that I was hoping for when I showed up here. So he's up there on this hill and it's hot. You know, this is uh, 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 the Near East, semi-arid climate. It's hot. And God uh, gives Jonah this plant, makes it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head. And let's just, so look what it says in the ESV. It says, to save him from his discomfort. But don't be fooled by that word discomfort. It's actually the word ra in Hebrew. To save him from his evil. Now the translators have decided for whatever reason to sort of like, well, what's his evil? Like he's really hot, I guess. And there's a sense like on the surface, that's kind of what the plant's doing. You know, it's saving Jonah from hot sun and he's uncomfortable. But really, you know, if, if, to, to know what's going on underneath the English translation is to know what God's really getting at here. God's got a plan with this plant. Not just to like, cool Jonah off, but to save Jonah. That's the target. God wants to save Jonah. And so he's going to continue challenging Jonah's idols throughout here with the goal not just of saving Nineveh, but of saving Jonah too. Now the antidote for Jonah's idolatry is this. Uh, This is important. Let me say something and I'm going to explain it for a few seconds and then we'll actually get back to the story. The antidote for Jonah's idolatry is to reorder his loves. The, the antidote for Jonah's idolatry is to reorder his loves. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, because I realize it's kind of a, a, a little bit on the wordy side. You'll notice that God does not come to Jonah and say to him, hey, hey, stop being angry. He doesn't say that to Jonah. He asks him a question twice. He says, is this, is this worth your anger? Do you do right to be angry about this plant thing? Do you do right to be angry? Like last week in in verse uh, 4. Do you do right to be angry that I rescued Nineveh? Uh, He doesn't say stop being angry because God knows, and you guys know too, that anger and love are not incompatible. The problem with Jonah is not that he doesn't love. And hey, you should start being loving and stop being angry. The the problem is, is that he has disordered loves. Here's what I mean. Like anger and love are not opposites. Anger and love go hand in hand. 
Love demands anger. So, so frequently people will be troubled, like I talk to people uh, who are not big fans of Christianity, and one of the reasons will sometimes be because, like, I just don't like the picture of the God in the Bible who's this angry God, and he's angry all the time. Well, of course he's angry all the time, because he's a loving God. Love demands anger. You know, so I say, if you come and you take my bag of Doritos from me, uh, I'm going to be angry. And the reason why I'm angry is because I love Doritos. If you took my Funyuns from me, I would not be angry. Because I don't like Funyuns. So, I wouldn't be super angry. I would be a little ticked. Now, if somebody kidnapped one of my kids, I would be furious. Righteously furious. And I would hope that nobody in here would be, come to me and say, Hey, don't be angry. You should be loving. No, actually, I'm angry because I am loving. And the, the amount of love that I have for a person or for a thing is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where things are equal? Uh, yes, that wasn't actually it, but it's close to that, yeah. Um, equals, I can't think of the word, this is going to kill me. The, 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 the amount of anger that I have will equal the amount of love that I have for a thing. A correspondence, that's not it either, but it, that, that's going to work. And I need to move on because now I'm wasting your time and my time. So uh, God does not say to Jonah, stop being angry, because... Jonah's angry because Jonah loves something, right? Jonah loves his own ethnicity more than he loves God, more than he loves the city of Nineveh. God is not going to challenge him and say, you should not love it. Yeah, stop being angry and stop loving your ethnicity. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that his loves are disordered. Let me give you this great quote from St. Augustine. And it's kind of turgid, so we're just going to hang in there and I'll try and explain as we go along. All right, so St. Augustine said this about uh, uh, ordered loves. Living a just and holy life, Augustine says, requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. Here's what he means. To love things, that is to say, in the right order. To be a good Christian means to love things in the right order. So that you do not love what is not to be loved. Right? You shouldn't love murder. This makes sense. We get this. Or fail to love what is to be loved. We should love justice and righteousness. Or, here's where it gets more complicated, or have a greater love for what should be loved less. Or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more. Or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. See what he's saying? You should love the things that should be loved more, more, and you should love the things that should be loved less, less. And you should love the things that should be loved equal, equal. And you can't mess those up. And one of the problems with idolatry is... I'm just going to give you some straight psychology right now. One of the problems with idolatry is that we hardly ever idolize murder. That's hardly ever our idol. Like, Satan's too smart for that. We hardly ever idolize screaming in people's faces. Instead, we idolize good things. We idolize church. We idolize family. We idolize money. We idolize sex. We idolize all these good gifts that God gives us. And so it's easy, it's easy to say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, of course, nothing's wrong with that. The problem is, is that it's just disordered. There's nothing wrong with money. But when you love money more than God, your loves are disordered. And that's, wh- that's why idolatry is tricky, because it's so easy. It is so easy to make excuses for idolatry, because of course family's good. Of course I should love my family. Well, yeah, of course you should love your family, but you should never love your family more than God. So idolatry comes into play, and this is, what, this is what Jonah get, where Jonah gets in trouble, is that 
He loves this thing, but he loves it more than God. He loves it more than God. And what God is going to do in this story here is he's going to try to reorder Jonah's loves. God is not going to say, stop being angry. You should be, you should be ashamed of your ethnicity. Because that's his idolatry. His, his idolatry. Instead, he's going to say, really? You're angry about that? Maybe there should be, maybe there's other things that we should be more angry about. I know your ethnicity is, I made you Jewish. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's some things that are more important, Jonah. That's what he's going to do. Two things here I want us to see. First of all, God wants us, God wants Jonah to get God's love for Nineveh. That's the first thing. It's right off the surface of the story, right? God wants Jonah to get God's love for Nineveh. He wants him to understand it, and he wants him to experience what it is to love Nineveh like God does. Also, for us this morning, God wants us to love our city like he loves our city. God wants us to love Glen Carbon. God wants us to get his love for Glen Carbon, okay? All right, two steps to this. Two steps to getting this love. First step, recognizing that God has a right to love the city. Recognizing that God has a right to love Glen Carbon. So look at verse 10. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? So what God does is, so Jonah, his idolatry has got him turned in on himself. God gives him a little taste of something that he can love, the plant, and then he takes it away from him so that Jonah, by being upset at the absence of the plant, it'll be exposed to his mind what it is to love something and to have that taken away. And then God says to him, that thing, that's how I feel about Nineveh. The way that you feel about the plant, you know how you love the plant? I love Nineveh too. Don't I have a right to love Nineveh? Like, I made Nineveh. You didn't make the plant. Can, can you get it, Jonah? Can you get it that I have a right to love Nineveh? Like I said, one of the problems with Christian idolatry is we like to cover... We, we, one of the problems with Christian idolatry is that it's frequently a good, a good idol, right? Like family, or money, or sex, or power, or any, any number, even Bible study. Paul says in Romans 11, I bear witness about... I bear witness about the Jews, he says in Romans 11, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have turned God into an idol, even. We're not even going to get into how that's possible uh, this morning, but that's something worth thinking about, that, that, that our capacity for creating idols is so prolific, and we're so good at it. Should we, we should just be aware of that. One of the other problems with Christian idolatry is this, too, is that we frequently assume that God himself shares those idols. We frequently begin to assume that our idols are actually God's idols too. You remember that, uh, for those, has anybody in here read Wuthering Heights of the novel? Yes, uh, Pat Brink, thank you. Thank you for testifying. Um, uh, who's that by? It's by one of the Brontes, but I don't remember. Emily. So I, Yeah, I, I am having a big problem. I, I apologize for the delivery this morning. I uh, can't think of the right words or anything like that. Uh, there's a character in there, if you remember that story, if you, if, or if you saw the movie, the old movie. There's a character in there named Joseph. And Joseph is an old believer. He reads and studies his Bible all the time. He's a servant of the uh, Earnshaw family. And he's just miserable. He's a horrible person. Like He's always up in his loft praying and studying his Bible. And then when he's talking to people, he's always got his finger in their chest. And you're a sinner and God's going to blow you up and burn you in fire someday. To everybody. So, so Joseph... 
Like his self-righteousness has become such an idol for him that he assumes that God identifies with his self-righteousness. He has the authority to pass judgment on people because he just assumes that God has that same, God has that same idol, right? Just like Jonah. Jonah just assumes that God himself is an ethnically, Jewishly proud God. We all do this too. We all do this. It's not just a Christian thing. I've got a good friend um, who is, uh, like, ideologically, he's extremely liberal. And he grew up in this area, and then he uh, went to college uh, in Kentucky, and he had a job in Nashville. And he worked in Nashville for about two or three years, and then he moved out to the West Coast. And he told me, this is last year, he told me, he's like, I said, so why did, I hear Nashville's a great city, like, what, what made you want to move out West? And he was, well, I had a good job offer out there. And also, he's like, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't live with people anymore. Like, Nashville was too conservative. Like, I just wanted to get out west with people like me. And my response to him was like, I'm actually kind of ashamed of you a little bit. Like, if it's that important to you, why don't you be with people who disagree with you to help them see the light, right? I mean, but Christians are like that too. Like, our default mode frequently is to create a Christian sort of a ghetto. We just want to be with people who, who look just like us. Because we assume that that's what God loves too, right? God loves us. Our synod, uh, you know, so I, I'm in our synod because I love our synod. But our synod, like all other synods and, and, other, and all other groups, suffer, suffers from this as well. Assuming that who we are is the people that God loves. And this is just going to be a danger. Any group that you're in, like, so don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you should leave this synod and become a Methodist. Or a Roman Catholic or a Baptist or whatever. Because when you get to that group, it'll be the same thing. The temptation will be to define God in terms of us and to make our identity God's identity. Anytime we're making our identity in anything besides Jesus Christ, we've created an idol. And if our identity is in our Lutheranism or in our St. James-ism, St. James, that's not a word, our status as being St. James members, then we've created an idol. I got this email this week from an LCM, from, from a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod group, about um, a seminar that they're holding in the area. And it's a seminar about uh, three figures from Lutheran history and their role in the history of church music. And it sounds kind of interesting, and the people they're talking about are interesting people. But here's what, the, here's what the announcement said. This study will look at the contributions of Martin Luther, Paul Gerhardt, and Johann Sebastian Bach to the hymnological, musical, and theological heritage of the Lutheran church. That, that sounds interesting to me. Here's the line I want you to hear, though. As towering pillars of confessional Lutheranism, the question is for us, what does each man bring to this glorious heritage that so identifies us? That's the question. Do not get me wrong. I absolutely love Johann Sebastian Bach and Martin Luther. I have, picture, I have a picture of Bach in my office. I'm not bashing on Bach. But what I'm saying is, is if Bach, and even Luther, becomes your identity, which is what this line says, what does each man bring to this glorious heritage that so identifies us? If that's what identifies you, that's an idol. And the temptation for us will always be our church membership and our sin. And like I said, St. James. To allow that to become our identity. That is an idol. Our identity instead should only ever be who we are in Jesus Christ. And if it isn't, uh, then we've created... I love Bach. I love Martin Luther, right? I mean, those are great people that we should read and study and listen to. But that's not our identity. That's not our identity. And to take God and to say that's who God is too, that's the danger. And so first step is we've got to recognize that God has a right 
to love the city because that's God's choice. It's, it, maybe, maybe St. James is our identity and Glenn Carbon isn't. But God is going to try to bust us out of that to see that who he is is a God who exists for Glenn Carbon, for the sake of Glenn Carbon. There's this myth, Tim Keller points this out, is that there's this, um, there's this, uh, in evangelical Christianity, there's always this impulse to flee the cities because the cities are evil. Like the cities are the places where the, you know, where, where the devil does his work, right? Where there's drugs and sex and crime and people who don't look like us. And instead, what God does is he pushes Jonah to the city. Get, that's where I want you, in the city. You look at what Paul, Paul's constantly in the city. Paul's always in the big city. Very, very infrequently is Paul out in the suburbs or out in the boondocks. Because God wants us where he's at work, and he's at work in Glen Carbon, and so he doesn't want us in here, he wants us out there. So first of all, we have to recognize that God has a right to love the city. Here's the second step. Coming to love the city, not just recognizing that God loves the city, but coming to love the city because God loves it. Frequently when we have idols... It's because we're not close enough to the heart of God to realize what it is that he loves. We've created the thing that we love, and then, like I say, we color it so that we want it to look like he loves it too. It makes us feel better if we think that our idols are his idols. But to get close enough to his heart to know what's actually important to him, frequently we have idols because we're just not in the Word. Because our prayer life is non-existent. And so then it's easy to turn to some other God when we're not around the real God. And if you're struggling with idols... It's because you're not in the Word and you're not praying. Or, conversely, if you're not in the Word and not praying, you are going to have idols, even if they look like good things. So I have a relative who gives me gifts, uh, you know, Christmas gifts, birthday gifts, and they're never anything that I like. And I won't say who it is. Angela knows exactly what I'm talking about. Probably the kids do too. It's not Angela, by the way. And they give me these gifts, and it's never anything that I like. It's always something that would look good in their house, <laughs> right? And so they give me these gifts, and you know, I, I, hopefully I'm polite. I think that I've like, uh, 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 grown past the stage where I kind of groan and roll my eyes and say, oh man, I wish I had something different. But I, I think that frequently a lot of us come to God with that sort of thing. You know, we don't know God well enough to get him a gift that's, just an analogy, we're not really getting God gifts. He gives us gifts. We just assume he likes this, and so we're, we're left in the awkward position of saying, hey, God, look at this. And he, like, no, that's something you like, he says. It's not something I like. It's something that you like. Don't imagine that I like it just because you like it. If we got closer to his heart and knew him better, we would get to know his loves more, and it would shape and transform our loves. All right, so first of all, God wants us to get his love for the city. And I think that's just right off the surface. But, but check this out. Here's the last thing, and we're, and we're not too far away from being done it's not just as simple as God. God is not just simply saying, look, I love Nineveh, and so I want you to love it too. God is pointing out to Jonah that I love Nineveh. Listen, I love Nineveh for a completely different reason than you love the plant. Right? Why does Jonah love the plant? Jonah loves the plant because the plant gives him shade. And Jonah's upset when the plant doesn't do its job and goes away. But God loves Nineveh not because of what Nineveh does for him, but just for its own sake. He actually said, because I created it, right? This is the second level. is learning to love for the thing's sake. Not because of what it does for us. 
This, this is so hard to do. Like, I, I don't know how, how correct this story is, but Ravi Zacharias tells a story about Oscar Wilde, you know, famous 20th, uh, 19th century hedonist who um, was on his deathbed and said to his lover, have you ever loved anything or anybody for its own sake and not for what it did for you? And his lover said, I can't think of anything. And Oscar Wilde said, me either. And on his deathbed, he called for a priest. to make, like At the end of his life, he made this conversion confession. And, and it, it's because he realized, moments before he died, he realized, I've never actually loved outside of myself. I've only loved for what it's done to me. That's the nature of idols, right? You love sex or money or power or your family because we imagine what they can do for us. And what God wants us to do is get close to his heart, love like he loves, and what that means is loving in a way that's purely for the other's sake. Now, I'm telling you, and I'm telling myself, I should love my family just for their sake. I should love you guys just for their sake. And yet, like, that's so impossibly hard to do. Like, how, how is this possible? Like, how, how, how is this sort of, how is it possible to love outside of ourselves? And the answer is, is the gospel. The gospel liberates us to love not for ourselves and what we can get, not because we're getting shade from the plant, or because we're getting pleasure from the sex, or because we're getting control from the money that we have, or because we're getting a sense of like, I'm in charge here when you guys do what I tell you to do, but to love purely for the other, to love my wife, to love to, love to use money to benefit others, to love you guys for your sake. The gospel liberates me to do that. Well, how does the gospel do that? The gospel says that God loves and completely accepts us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Loves and completely accepts and gives us all good gifts. Look, let me say this. This is going to be a little bit, I want you to pay attention to this too. We have, those of us who are evangelical Christians have sometimes imagined that we need to not justify ourselves so that we can be saved and, and be right with God. But actually, let me argue, it's actually the other way around. Being right with God allows us to not justify ourselves. Not justifying ourselves is not the path or the means by which we get salvation. Salvation is the path and the means by which we learn not to justify ourselves. I was uh, hanging out at Kevin and Shanna's house last week and uh, with Angela and the kids, and they were telling me about this dog that belongs to a relative that they have, and, and this dog, has been, some of you have known dogs like this, the, the dog is a rescue dog, and when they feed that dog, that dog eats super fast, will attack any of the other dogs that come close to it, will attack any human, including the human that put the food in the bowl, if it comes close to it. The dog's been saved. That dog's already been rescued. But that dog has not yet come to understand the gospel. You know what I mean in the analogy, right? That you don't have to fight for that food. You don't have to eat that food fast. You don't have to argue with any other dogs. You don't have to rebel against the humans who feed you because the humans are going to feed you. The human rescued you and is going to guarantee that you get good food. That's where Jonah's at. Like Jonah's been rescued. Jonah's a believer. Right? Jonah's, Jonah's right with God in the sense that he's a child of God and knows who the true God is and worships him. It's part of what, Psalm, what, what, what Jonah 2, that psalm, is all about. But Jonah has not yet come to grasp the gospel. Jonah has not yet come to grasp that I already have everything I need in Jesus Christ. He's already given me all of his good gifts. I don't have to fight for anything else. 
Like, I don't have to argue with anybody. I don't have to defend my own idols. God justifying us does this. It liberates us to love each other. Like, so if you're that dog, and that dog comes to understand the God, it's just an analogy. You know, don't, don't, don't like, try to unpack this. Right? It's just a dog, right? But if that dog would come to understand the gospel on its level, that dog would be completely comfortable saying, hey, oh, so you're hungry? Here. You, other dog, you have some of my food. Because that dog knows it can get as much food as it wants. Like, you, we own the cattle on a thousand hills. We are the inheritors of the earth, Matthew 5 says. We don't have to argue or fight for anything. We don't have to get angry when people disagree with us. We don't have to get angry when people don't look like us. We don't have to get angry when we don't get our way because the gospel means we always get our way. It's guaranteed that God is going to give us all good gifts in Jesus Christ. So the gospel should liberate us to push our food over to the other dogs, to feed other people, to love other people. How does the gospel do this? Well, um, specifically, very last line in the, in, in, the, in the book is, you know, uh, Jonah, God saying to Jonah, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? So this should remind you, if, if you're listening, if, you're, if, you, if you've read the Gospels, this should remind you of Matthew 23, where Jesus stands above the city of Jerusalem and says, I have pity for that city. By the way, too, like, give, me, give me five seconds to make a little sidebar. He's not just pitying the souls in the city. He's actually pitying the city as a whole. This is what, this is what the bit about the, the cattle means. Like, God has pity on the whole city. It's not just, I'm going to rescue these souls. I'm going to rescue the city. Jesus stands above the city of Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, how often? I I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you wouldn't. N.T. Wright in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, points out that this is like barnyard language. This is the, the hen who, in a barnyard fire, will call its chicks to gather up underneath its wings. And when the fire has passed through... The hen will be burnt and dead, but the chicks will be alive underneath it. This is what Jesus is saying when he stands up above Jerusalem. I wanted to gather you under my wings so that I could take the brunt of the fire for you. That I could take that baptism of fire for you. This is how Jesus loves the city. He loves the city by giving himself up for the city. This is how he loves you guys and me. He loves us by giving himself up for us. And then he says, I guarantee I'm doing that for Glenn Carbon. Come along for the ride. Come along for this mission. Last thing. 30 seconds and we'll be done. The story has zero ending, right? It ends with this question. Just like, we talked about this a, a couple months ago. Just like uh, the prodigal son story ends with a question. And the implication is this. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Like, how are you going to respond to this? Is it right to be angry about the things that are making you angry? Or instead... Can we acknowledge that God in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is working to shape our loves away from our own loves to His love? Specifically, His love in Jesus Christ for Glenn Carver. Let's pray. God, shape, shape our loves, shape our hearts, order our loves so that we love the thing that You love. That we love You, that we love Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we love the sacrifice that Your Son Jesus has made for us. That we love His resurrection and that we love his mission here in Glen Carver. Put us on this mission for your own honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.